book of Ecclesiastes. And amidst the hustle and bustle of life, I believe, I left the clicker up there in the sound booth. So uh, that would be helpful if you could drag that down to me. But uh, we are in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, looking at verses uh, 8 all the way through chapter 6, verse 9. And we're going to kind of read it uh, as we go, uh, as opposed to in one huge section. Thank you, Wendy. Have you heard that money can't buy happiness? But if you listen to country music, you know that it can buy you a boat. <laughs> Kids can be dismissed to junior church. <laughs> or they're not getting babysat but being discipled. Thank you, Rebecca, for doing that. So what can money buy? Well, it can't buy you happiness. But as Chris Jansen sang, it can buy me a boat. We know that money can't buy health, but it can buy us better health care. We know that money cannot buy many things, but it can buy a better quality of some things, right? From education, what schools you can get into and opportunities that you have, to even retirement homes. What do you think about money? It's a big topic, isn't it? The biblical perspective of wealth and possessions is not a simple one. We hope to make it simple, but it can be kind of complicated. For instance, if you were to read this through the Gospels, if you're new to our faith family, the Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you read through those accounts of Christ's life, you might walk away with thinking, it is better for you to be poor than it is to be rich. But... You also have people in the New Testament, in the Gospels, that are very godly, that are also very rich. Think in the Old Testament. You have Job. You have Abraham. In the New Testament, you have the women that funded Jesus' ministry as well as the apostles' ministry. You have Joseph of Arimathea who used his tomb to bury Christ. And you also have the Good Samaritan. You guys remember the Good Samaritan? Yeah, nobody would have remembered the Good Samaritan if all he had was good intentions. After all, he had money too. And it was his use of money that actually blessed the man stuck in the ditch. We see that riches can be a blessing from God in the Old Testament, all the patriarchs. But we also see that money can be a liability. The New Testament says that there is nothing that puts you in more spiritual danger than having money. Jesus said this in Matthew 19, 24. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That's how dangerous money can be. In fact, let's be honest. Do you have to have money to worship money? Why do so many people buy, play the lotto? when the chances are so very slim. It is not just those that seek to accumulate it, that then worry and have anxiety over all that they have, but it is also people that are very, very, very poor that believe that if they just had some money, they would be content or they wouldn't be in a situation or life would change, and they look to having money as a solution to all of their problems. Being a pastor now for 12 years, I've 
been with men who have had corporations make bad investments and they lose all their money. I've also been with teenagers living in some really rough housing in Concord, watching mom and dad wish that they had money and contemplate suicide. I've seen both. So let's say how dangerous money really is. Coveting is an equal opportunity sin, and it stalks the poor and the rich alike. You don't have to have money to worship it, but if you do have it, it can also be an idol of our heart. Greed is something that can blind every single one of us. So this morning, we want to see two lies the love of money can whisper into our ear. And these lies that that money kind of whispers into our ear are prone to kind of chain our heart to this world. In fact, these lies wrap around our heart and they chain us to this world. And today we want to see how we can kind of change our chains for eternal gains in Christ. Let's look at the first lie that we are tended to believe, this this chain, so to speak, that weighs us down, that wraps around our heart. It is the belief that money will make me happy. My money makes me happy. We believe that money and the stuff that it buys us can bring satisfaction. Listen to some reflections from the preacher man in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Let's look at verse 10. Ecclesiastes 5, 10. If you're new to using the Bible, the big numbers are the chapter. The small numbers are the verses. And so Ecclesiastes 5, 10 says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. What is a preacher man saying? Money can't bring ultimate satisfaction. Why? Well, in these two chapters, he gives us several reasons why desiring money doesn't satisfy because of the unexpected costs. Look with me at verses 8 and 9, and we'll see one of the first unexpected costs of desiring money too much is that you can lose your integrity, and therefore it ultimately doesn't satisfy. Verse 8, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, Do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivating his fields. It is a very tricky verse to translate, but the idea here is that there is no trickle-down economics. Really, people are exploited Fields are harvested, but all it does is line the pockets of those that are higher and higher and higher up the echelon. And so sometimes money and the desire to have it tends to make you abuse people. The poor, it's a violation of justice and righteousness, it says in verse 8. But it's all for those that want more and they're willing to kind of, you know, glean all the way to the edge of their fields in the Old Testament. They're willing to take advantage of people, and we see this in corporations as well. But look at verse 11. We also see some advantages, or some, I'm sorry, some disadvantages that, that we can kind of more relate to as ordinary working people. Verse 11, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? What is another unexpected cost? The more money you make, the more people that want to leech off of the money that you make. As soon as you make all this money, you begin to need 
an agent, a lawyer that you keep on retainer, right? You now need a chef in order to make you dinner because you don't have time for that. You need a gardener to care for your lawns. You need a driver to take you places. All of these things, the more money you make, you begin to find more people that want to help you use your money. And what is the satisfaction that you get? Verse 11, you get to see them with your own eyes. All you can do with all that you've accumulated is sit there and look at it. My kids have just recently found on Amazon or Netflix or something, DuckTales. Do you guys remember DuckTales? Huey, Louie, and the gang. But there is a scene in the opening kind of song, if you will, where Uncle Scrooge is surfing and swimming through his vault of coins. After you've accumulated all of this money, what can you do? Well, for us today, we could just print out our bank statement and just look at those black and white numbers. Now you sit there and you go, I made more money than I did last year. Where is it all going? Right? And you see that it sit, you sit there. Where is it all going? It is all going to other people that want to use your money to help you manage your stuff. And the only thing that you get is to sit there and just look at it with your eyes. You say, look, kids, a brand new hardwood floor. Look, kids, a new car. Look, kids, a tractor. Look, kids, a new dining room table. Now, don't touch it. Don't spill anything on it. Just look at it. Have you ever done a project, men, when you get done, you really just want your kids to levitate? I just got done putting some hardwood floors in. We were moving things around. I walked back in the hallway, and there is a two-foot to four-foot scratch right down the middle of the hallway. <laughs> the, the tools weren't even put away. So you know what we did? We found our old rug that we thought we didn't need anymore, and we rolled it right back out. <laughs> Kids, look at that hardwood floor. You can sit there, and that's it. You look at it, and it doesn't satisfy. Not only does it not satisfy, verse 12 tells us that the love of money can tempt us to want to accumulate things, but verse 12 tells us the love of money can actually make us have anxiety. Not only accumulate, but anxiety. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. I'm not sure which rapper put this song out there. Mo money, mo problems. Didn't want to play that one in church, all right? But they get it. The more money that you have, the more you stay up at night worrying about what's going to happen to your money. Those are some of the unexpected costs. But the greatest disadvantage to desiring money is the work that it does on your souls. Jesus warns us in the New Testament, the desire for money can destroy our spiritual lives. Look with me here at Matthew 13, 22. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of what? Riches. Choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Why have many left? Why have many strayed from the faith? It seemed like there was a good fruit there. There was some growth happening in their life. But the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, choked out the word. And what was once sown now becomes unfruitful. Paul goes on to tell us in 1 Timothy 
the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. What's Paul saying? He's calling you to remember afresh that the love of money can destroy relationships. Think of Jacob and Esau. The love of money can destroy relationships like Jacob and Esau, all selling his birthright for a cup of soup. Desiring money can lead to bad decisions like Judas selling Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He kept the purse strings and it led him to betray our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Or consider the rich young ruler who did not turn to follow Christ because why? He couldn't part with his wealth. So Jesus says, take care. Take care. Be on your guard. He's throwing a flag on the field that says, stop. Pay attention. There's a foul here. Be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Remember, wealth is not the problem. It is the insatiability of those that desire it. It's like an appetite. Look with me at Ecclesiastes 6, 7. Ecclesiastes 6, 7. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. Those of you that ate breakfast this morning, will you be surprised this afternoon when you begin to crave lunch? Oh, I ate once. I won't need to eat the rest of the day. No. The appetite, the nature of appetite is that it's ongoing, and it's not just about food. It's also about our possessions and money. The desire for money is never quenched. And here's a lie that we believe, that we will just be content if we get all that we wanted. But friends, consider Eve. Eve is the only woman who lived in the perfect home and garden. And ladies, Eve is the only one that actually had a perfect husband. And guess what? She still wasn't content. It wasn't because of what she had that brought her discontentment. It's because of what she believed. We're going to figure that out a little bit later in the service. Maybe you're here saying, Josh, I don't want to have all, but if God could just give me just this one thing, I think I would be content then. Well, do you remember Rachel and Leah? What did Rachel want that Leah had? A son. She had all of these children and if I could just have one, well, God does open her womb and give her a son, and she names him Joseph, which means in Hebrew, may Jehovah increase. She got the one thing, and what does she name him? May Jehovah add. May Jehovah increase. May I just have one more. And so friends... There is a God-made and a God-shaped void that even a baby boy or a billion dollars cannot fill. So what should we do? Ditch envy and embrace contentment. Turn over in your Bibles to Philippians. It's in the New Testament. Philippians chapter 4. Galatians. 
Ephesians, Philippians 4. This is one of Paul's prison epistles, meaning that he wrote this while in prison. That context should help us interpret what he is saying. Does the Apostle Paul, is he made of a different protoplasm than me and you? Well, he says in verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Philippians 4.11. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have what? Learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Church, you need to know that contentment is available. It's available for you because Paul, he had to learn it. He says here, I can do all things, but really the context says what? Not that you can go and be an astronaut, not that I will ever turn into a linebacker. I wish that I had the physique of some of you in here, but God has not made me to be a linebacker. I can believe Philippians 4.13. I can put it underneath my eyes with the little black eye shadow and the little mark like Tim Tebow used to do. And I can go out there and I can say, I can do all things through Christ, but as soon as they, you know, hit me, <laughs> I am not getting back up. That, that verse does not mean you can do things whatever you want. It really has the context here of I can bear all things through Christ who strengthens me. That, that, that's the context. He had the same source of life that me and you have, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. How do you cultivate contentment in a covetous age? I want to give you this word picture today. Paul is like Psalms 1. He has a tree, his life is a tree, and it is planted by streams of living water. And what gave him contentment was his belief in this sovereign and good God who provides everything according to his needs. And he says, Lord, I trust you that if you've given me this, and that's what I needed, and if I don't have it, it must be something I don't need. But God supplies all of our needs according to his riches in glory. Look at how Paul ends Philippians 4.19. He has this confidence. He's learned this. He's tested God. His relationship with God is a source of his contentment. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. We need to learn contentment in order to deal with the unexpected cost of desiring money. But not all, having made that point, the preacher man moves on now to say that those of us not only are tempted to accumulate wealth, some of us want to hoard wealth for the security that it brings. My stuff will make me happy is that first lie that changed our heart to this world and we live for today. But the second lie that comes into our life that makes us only live for the here and now is this belief that my money, if I hoard it, it will bring me security. It'll make me secure. Do you have to have money in order to believe this lie? Just like the first one, right? You can believe, you can wish upon it, you can stack it. Either way, this temptation is for every single person here 
you believe that if I just had a little bit more, then I would be secure. But does money really provide security? I once read this poem. Money talks, I will not deny. I heard it once say, goodbye. As soon as you get it, out it goes, and money is not worth living for because it can be lost. The preacher man is right about this. Turn back to Ecclesiastes 5. Let's look at verses 14 through 16 together. Ecclesiastes 5, 14 through 16, and see how money disappears. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. Naked he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? You're trying to go out there and accumulate and to bring security and trying to grasp it and stack it and keep it safe and diversify your portfolio so that whatever happens in your life, you can still land on your feet. But this verse really makes me think of Job, doesn't it? Diversified portfolio for sure. Had it in many different things, but in one day, Job, a righteous man, lost it all. In the New Testament, if you go over to Luke chapter 12, Jesus has a parable of a rich fool. Luke chapter 12. In this parable, the times are really good. The land produced plentiful, it says here in verse 16. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentiful. And it's in that context of having all this money that there is a test of his heart. And he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and I will build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, you see how there is an idle relationship there? I say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool. How would you like God to say that to you? Fool. Here's the point. If you're rich and you have a diversified portfolio, but you do not have a right relationship with God, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Have you ever considered the test of prosperity? Some of us are like, yeah, Lord, I'll try that. Test me with prosperity and see how I do. I would love that challenge. Well, here he decides to build larger barns. Is that a good answer or a bad answer? It really just kind of depends on where you put your trust. Where do you put your trust? For this man, his trust was not in the Lord, but in the fact that he had diversified it and that he had ample goods so he could sit back, eat, drink, and be merry. So Paul charges Timothy, 
in 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. Let me turn there for you. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, and to be ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. What does Paul want Timothy to do in church? He wants to charge everybody in church that if we are to be rich, we need to be rich towards God and to set our hopes in God, not in the uncertainty of riches. That's a charge for all of us this morning. That's why when we take an offering, we hope that you don't just see it as paying the church's bills. We hope that you see offering as a demonstration of your worship of where your trust is. We say often it is one effort of cutting the purse strings of our heart. So how do we cut this love of money out of our heart? Well, first, we have to remind ourselves that it's not because we don't have something, but because we don't believe something. Thomas Watson said this quote, discontentment is nothing but the echo of unbelief. Discontentment is the echo of unbelief. What does he mean? Basically, that the reason why we are not content is not because we don't have certain things, it's because we don't believe certain things. So as we take some steps of faith this morning, there's five steps of faith this morning, and they're all about doctrines that you need to believe. Oh, wow, this is a pretty heady church. No, it's because we don't believe the right things that we don't have the contentment that fills our hearts. So what's our first doctrine that we need to believe? The doctrine of creation prompts enjoyment. If we feast on the doctrine of creation, we will know how to enjoy our wealth as good stewards. It starts with this. God made the world. God made everything that is in it. He even made money. And church, young people especially, he did not make money just to be a temptation to you. I'm going to try to be delicate. In the same way, young people, God did not create physical intimacy just to be a temptation for you. He created it for something to be good, used in its proper place, right? It's the same thing with money. He has a good purpose in mind. You and your money are designed for more than just accumulation or anxiety. This is what you get to do with your money. You get to show the worth of God. And you get to enjoy it. Use your money. Save your money. Use it for God's glory, but I would also say this, church, enjoy your money by using it for God's purposes. When is the last time you actually enjoyed your money? We fret over it. No, we shouldn't spend this. No, we don't have enough for that. No, we can't enjoy that here. It's just for bills. But God loves a cheerful what? Giver. It is to enjoy it in God's purposes and with God's intent. So at the resurrection of the just and how you spent your money this afternoon, can God reward you for that? If so, enjoy it. Enjoy that use. Second, the doctrine of end times. We need to know that in order to prompt stewardship. If you study and remember the doctrine of end times, and I am not talking about your eschatological flow chart, okay? This is not charts and graphs of what happens first and when's the rapture and is there a rapture and pre-wrath and all that. That's not what I'm talking about. 
I'm talking about what's going to happen to you after you die. And if we remind ourselves that we are going to die, that there is a heaven to be inherited, it will motivate you to use your time and your talents and your treasure to be rich towards God, to store up treasures in heaven. How many of you have practiced delayed gratification? Let's think about college age. Those in college, how many of you decided, I'm going to live at home because I want to end debt-free? Other college kids, I'm going to eat ramen noodle every day because I want to what? I want want to be debt-free when I come out. I'm going to go for six years, not become a doctor, but just go for six years to get through it, right, so that I can be debt-free. It's called delayed gratification. Adults, how many of us have practiced that when it comes to paying down our mortgage? One extra payment per year. We take a 30-year mortgage and we make it 20. And you have delayed vacations. You've delayed date nights, all for that sense of being able to say, my mortgage is paid for in 15, 20 years. If you can do that with college and a mortgage, the Bible wants to ask you, why can't you do that for your entire life? Why invest your money where, wrath, where moth and rust can destroy? The payoff is coming. Martin Luther said this, What sort of God is it that is not even capable of defending himself against moth and rust? So as we're tempted to invest in things that are going to deteriorate, clothing, gold, all these things that can be stolen or rotted, or a car. Martin Luther says, invest your treasure in heaven where moth and rust can't, dis- can't steal and destroy. What kind of God is it that can't protect from those things? Therefore, don't invest in those. Consider true riches by a doctrine of end times. The doctrine of providence should prompt us to trust. Those of us that are taking the Romans Sunday school class, Romans 8, we truly believe that God works all things together for good. If we really believe that, then can you trust God in feast or famine? Too often we're like the Israelites, aren't we, in the wilderness? Though God has promised to provide for our daily manna, what do we do? We hoard We hoard because we don't believe that God will continue to provide. It's an issue of trust. But remember, distrust is worse than distress. Cut the root of the love of money by the step of faith that believes God will never leave you nor forsake you. Hebrews 13.5 Know, church, that prosperity and famine are not by chance, but the same God that has allowed that to happen in your life, does not leave you alone, but walks with you through it. How can you be content if you believe in the doctrine of providence and it helps you to trust God? The doctrine of the incarnation prompts generosity. It will cut the love of money and will help us to be generous when we look at Christ. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. 
Christ became poor so that you could become rich. That's why we give our deacon caring offering on Communion Sunday, because we get to see how Christ became poor so that we could be rich, which we take an extra offering, right, to say we want to become poor so that others, through our generosity, can become rich in Christ. God gave us money to enjoy his creation, but he also gave us money to extend his kingdom. If you wonder if money is your master, give it away. You know, the alcoholic says, I can stop at any time. We're used to that. And it's the same thing. We need the same warning for us that are covetous. I, I can stop spending money on myself anytime. Okay. Cut it. Give it away. When was the last time God's incredible generosity was so big and so real to you that you were able to let go of a treasured possession to bless somebody else. We're not motivated by guilt. You're motivated by the magnitude and the gratitude of what Christ has done for you. That's why I don't think there's a tithing principle in the New Testament. I don't think it's just 10%. I, I think it's if Christ was rich, became poor for you, you will not get to heaven and say, this is all there is. I should have kept more for myself on earth. We don't believe in the prosperity gospel. This is not your best life now. Store up treasures in heaven. That's why I really love the heart of what Gordon Furno has said about our missions budget. Pray for our trustees right now. They're trying to prioritize our budget as a church. And his desire, whether it actually works out the same percentage that he wants, but his desire is to give more away in missions, to double our missions budget. I think it's the right direction. It's the right idea. Why? Stop spending money on us as a church, the inside these four walls, and do we have the faith and the perspective of what Christ has done for us to spend money on people that don't know Jesus yet, that don't go here, that don't even live near here? It's a perspective that I really hope that you pray about for our trustees, and I think it's biblical. It's based upon the incarnation. Lastly, how do you cut the love of money? The doctrine of justification. Have you noticed that you use money as a way to keep score? Many of you know my story. If you don't know me, I'm Josh. I was in school for 35 years. You know what being in school for 35 years does to you? Permanent head damage. But you know what it also does? Compare, connect that with, I think I'm still an athlete. I wear athletic clothes, essentially. That's all that means. <laughs> so I've gone to school a long time, and I wear athletic clothes. Both academics and sports do this to your brain. They validate you based upon a score. You write a paper. You instantly get it back. 94, hey, I'm worth something. You, you, you play soccer. You, you lift weights. You, you, you play football. There's winners and there's losers. Validation. What do you do when you're not in school anymore and when you don't play sports? Church, can we be honest? We often go to money now to validate us. How am I doing? I got a bunch of stuff. You see that barn? You see that extra garage? You see that bank account? You see this designer couch? If we're looking for acceptance and standing in money, the Bible says you haven't understood the gospel. It's not the kind of car you drive, the size of your paycheck, your net worth. 
size of your house that makes you worth something. You are justified by faith alone so that no one can boast. Money, boast. Grace, boast in Christ. Justification, that you are accepted because of what Christ has done by grace alone, by faith alone, allows you to rest. Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. Oh, bless the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me. Bless his holy name. I am justified, complete in Christ by his finished work. Amen. We're going to give you a moment to have a time of reflection, to evaluate where the lies of money have bound your heart to this world and what truth, what belief, what doctrine do you need to put in there to explode those chains, to use dynamite so that you can be free to be rich towards God and enjoy his money as good stewards. I think Jen's going to play through it once and then we'll stand and sing and then I'll come back up here to describe how we can take communion together. Is that right, Andrew? Did I got the order right? Okay. Thank you, Jen. Please stand with me as we sing, There is a Fountain. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty Thank you. 